All right. So as I've been thinking about teaching things for this year, and we're talking about teaching direction for this year, something that I want to spend some time on, just sprinkled throughout the Sundays, is wisdom. Um, I've been learning a lot about that and listening to other people talk a lot about wisdom. And so I wanted to begin to embark on that today. So we're going to talk from Ecclesiastes today. I don't know how much time you've spent in Ecclesiastes, but it can get kind of weird. (laughs) But there is so much awesome wisdom within Ecclesiastes. And though idolatry isn't directly mentioned so much there, it really protects us from falling into the trap of idolatry if we'll take hold of what the teacher is saying in Ecclesiastes. So let's start with some background. The book of Ecclesiastes is what's referred to in the Bible as wisdom literature. We've talked about before how all of the Bible is meditation literature. It's something that we read over and over again for our entire lives. We feed on it. And we think on it. The Holy Spirit reveals things that are very personal to us through the Word. So we meditate on that for a lifetime. And honestly, I feel like you could spend a lifetime meditating on the wisdom of Ecclesiastes. And if you live life and have experiences in life, it's almost like Ecclesiastes just draws you in. It has so much just practical life stuff in it. And it's part of the wisdom literature. There's two other books. The wisdom literature is Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Job. And hopefully... I'll get to teach on this more later this year, but I'm still kind of trying to understand it and put it all together because all three books of wisdom literature inform each other. You need the perspective of all three books to build a nice, complete picture of wisdom. And what I like about Ecclesiastes, among many things, is that you can't read it like a bunch of one-liners, Like, you know, if you go to Kohl's and get a sign with a Bible verse on it, it's probably not going to be from Ecclesiastes. (laughs) It's That's just not the kind of book that it is. You can't even really necessarily read it like you do Proverbs. Proverbs is a lot of basic wisdom. It's a lot of, if you do this, then this will happen. Or if you see this, then this is probably what it means. It's basic, straightforward things like that. Ecclesiastes, the person who's giving you the information in this book, is a character. He's called the teacher. The teacher is telling you all of this wisdom that he's acquired. But it's not prescriptive for you. You can't read Ecclesiastes and just say, okay, I'm just going to do exactly what he's saying. You don't want to do all the teacher's experiments to try to discover what is good to do under the sun. That's not what the point is. The message of the book isn't just laying right there on the surface for you to take. You have to go deeper in Ecclesiastes to get what he's saying. There's even parts of Ecclesiastes that seem like they contradict things that we already know. There's one point where the teacher is talking about the fate of human beings and animals being the same. He says, really, do human beings have it any better than animals because we're just both going to die anyway? Doesn't that sound terrible? Well, he's not saying that there's no afterlife, and he's not saying that there's no difference between humans and animals. What he's doing is he's focusing on what happens here on this physical plane. He's saying that both of us have a limited amount of days, and both of us have to go through physical death. That's a reality until the Lord returns. 
And that's what he's saying. He's not making some contradiction about everything that we know about eternity. So you can see it's kind of, it's not right there on the surface. And if you just take everything completely literally, you're really going to struggle in Ecclesiastes. So don't go out and do all the things the teacher said he did in the pursuit of wisdom. And he's talking a lot about the futility of life in this age. This book continually eludes attempts to oversimplify it. And I think that's part of what makes it interesting, is that you have to sit with it for a long time. And um, I, to sum all this up, I thought that this, uh, this summary from my study Bible was really good, so I'm just going to read that for you. The Bible is never shy about confronting painful truths or hard questions. Sometimes Christians are shy about confronting hard truths and painful questions. That's why I like Ecclesiastes. It's not shy about that. The book of Ecclesiastes faces the issue of how we can find meaning in life in light of the seemingly futile nature of everything. It will not allow the reader to retreat into superficial answers, and it does not answer this problem by comforting us with hollow slogans. To the contrary, its motto is, everything is futile. But by forcing us to face the futility of human existence, it guides us to a life free of empty purpose and deceitful validation. That's a great summary of the book of Ecclesiastes. So there's lots of wisdom in this book. And remember, the premise for today is that the wisdom of Ecclesiastes will protect us if we listen to it from falling into the trap of idolatry. So we're going to start to work our way through this. To get into this book... um, Here's just the first couple of verses that are going to make an important point for us to start to go over before we get into the other things. Ecclesiastes 1.1, the words of the teacher, a son of David, king in Jerusalem. Absolute futility, says the teacher. Absolute futility. Everything is futile. What does a person gain for all his efforts that he labors at under the sun? you're going to talk about Ecclesiastes, you have to talk about futility. This word is used something I think like 38 times throughout the whole book of Ecclesiastes, and it's central. It's very, very important. Other translations uh, will use the words vain. Everything is vain. Sometimes they'll say everything is meaningless. And the meaning of this Hebrew word is kind of lost in our English language. This is the Hebrew word hevel. And it's being used many times in Ecclesiastes to indicate something that has the appearance of being substantial or able to be grasped, but that fades away and disappears when you try to grab it. So think of smoke or think of vapor when you're outside and it's really cold and you can see your breath or smoke. You can see a physical thing there in front of you in the air. It looks like something, but if you didn't know any better, you're a baby You would reach out and try to grab it, and it would dissipate. It would fall through your fingers. So it looks like this physical, tangible thing that's going to give you something to hold on to. But when you go to hold on to it, it just falls apart. It's an illusion. And such are many of the things in life. People will try to pursue things that they feel like are sure. Like, if I just get this job, if I can just make this much money, if I could just have this kind of house, if I could just have this sort of family, this sort of marriage, that kind of car, this sort of wisdom, 
all this stuff. If I could just have that, grasp onto that, and that would give me something sure that I could build my life on. And then they do it, and they pursue it, and they go to grasp it, and it falls through their fingers. It doesn't satisfy. It doesn't give them that sure thing they're looking for, that it can only come from the Lord. So that's the essence of meaninglessness or futility that's being communicated here in Ecclesiastes. It looks substantial, but it's fleeting. And so the message is not so much that we should just give up on everything, because what's it matter? And it's all transitory and temporal, and so just forget it. Nothing's worth it. That's not the message. The message is that we should see things in their proper perspective. You have to keep it in its proper perspective. And God, in his proper perspective, he's the one who fulfills now all of these things of life. So this Hebrew word hevel is really important for today because it's where the connection between the wisdom of Ecclesiastes and protection from idolatry starts. It's all right here in this one word. So let's look at Deuteronomy 32 verse 12. Which I could get to if I turn to this on. All right, this is God talking here about Israel. He says, They have provoked my jealousy with what is not a god. They have enraged me with their worthless idols. So I will provoke their jealousy with what is not a people, and I will enrage them with a foolish nation. So look at this word, these words here, worthless idols that I have underlined there. That's our Hebrew word, hevel. It's the same word that's used 38 times in Ecclesiastes, the word hevel. So people in ancient Israel that worshipped idols instead of the one true God, they were looking for something that they thought had substance. They see this idol and they reach for it, thinking, this is going to give me what I want. This is going to fulfill me, give me prosperity, fertility, security, all of these different things. They reach for it, and it's nothing. It ends up being just this worthless illusion. And in the process, they lose all happiness, all security, all of those things, and most of all, they lose God. So do you see the connection in Hevel between the worthless things of life when you try to grasp onto them for things only God can fulfill? And then hear what he's talking about in Deuteronomy, these worthless idols that Israel was turning to for all these things instead of turning to him. It was empty. There was nothing really there that was going to give them something to build on. Now, idolatry, doesn't that feel like this ancient really foreign concept to us. We're completely unfamiliar with going to a pagan temple and bowing down to a statue. We are completely unfamiliar with worshiping the sun. That's just not what we do in modern times for the most part, at least here in North America. But idolatry can still take place today. And it is a common problem of humanity. Like Through all the ages, it has never gone away. People are prone to idolatry. So idols can be made from anything. They can be made from even good things. Whenever we take something and elevate it above God and seek from that thing something only God can fulfill, we get into idolatry. So what are some modern day idols? When I ask that question, there's probably a bunch of things that come right to your mind immediately because you know you see it all of the time. 
Well, it just so happens that a lot of the modern-day idols people have today are a lot of the things the teacher in Ecclesiastes warns us against. There are a lot of the things that he tells us, this is futile, this is empty. If you try to grasp onto it to fulfill you, to give you meaning, it is going to dissipate in your fingers. And I think that's so cool. These things that he's teaching us about, they often become worthless idols to people today. So there's so much good that we can take from what he's saying that protects us from falling into that trap of idolizing things in our modern times. This book was written thousands of years ago. Like He had some real wisdom for all time here. So what I want to do is go through some of these examples of modern-day idols that he talks about in Ecclesiastes. And then I want to finish up by, after we've gone through all of these, don't idolize this thing. He also, the teacher tells us what we should do instead of grasping onto meaningless things. And we'll go over those couple of things as well. So the first thing we'll start with is the pursuit of wisdom and knowledge. The teacher says, this is meaningless. This is hevel. Chapter 1, verse 15. What is crooked cannot be straightened, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said to myself, see, I have amassed wisdom far beyond all those who were over Jerusalem before me, and my mind has thoroughly grasped wisdom and knowledge. I applied my mind to know wisdom and knowledge, madness and folly. I learned that this too is a pursuit of the wind, for with much wisdom is much sorrow. As knowledge increases, grief increases as well. So this section of verses here. It starts with a proverb. A proverb is just a wise saying. It will often be laid out in a couple of lines. It'll be kind of catchy. It'll be easy to remember. And its goal is to teach you a simple lesson that you can carry around with you. So this first part starts with that proverb. What is crooked cannot be straightened. And that's referring to a problem that is unsolvable. If something's crooked and it can't be straightened, this is a problem that you encounter that has no satisfying answer. No matter what you do, it's a problem that can't be solved. No matter how much wisdom you have, you can't solve this particular problem. And what's lacking cannot be counted. That's referring to trying to solve a problem with inadequate information. You've got a problem in front of you and you really need to be able to see the big picture But you're looking at it, and all of these pieces are missing. So you can't make sense of it. You're working with inadequate information. So the teacher here is saying, I've put all of this time and effort into amassing all of this wisdom and knowledge, and still I have encountered problems that I cannot solve, that have no satisfying answer, and I have missing information because God's wisdom is higher than mine, and I will never understand all of the happenings of life. And that is just the ev- the essence of life. Sometimes we do not have satisfying answers, and sometimes there are many missing pieces. And this section also ends with this proverb here. For with much wisdom is much sorrow, and as knowledge increases, grief increases. This is pretty self-explanatory. The more you know, the more you understand how far you are And how far everything else is from the ideal. The more you know, the more you realize that you really don't know. 
And as I was studying this verse, I came across this great line. I don't even remember where I found it, but I like the picture that this paints. It says, when you try to take from the tree of knowledge of good and evil for your nourishment, for your fulfillment, all that you will find is that you are naked and lacking. That's all there is for you to find there. If that's where you're trying to take for your nourishment, for your life, you'll just find that things are not as they should be. We don't always get to understand all of that. So even with wisdom, we will not completely understand all the complexities and happenings of life. It's impossible. But it is very possible to drive yourself crazy and spin your wheels trying to understand everything. That's really possible. (laughs) So let's see. The teacher's conclusion on wisdom, it has more than one layer. Because Ecclesiastes is nuanced. Remember I said you can't oversimplify it. It has more than one layer. Because so far it seems like, well, wisdom is a good thing, right? It is, but you can go too far in it. So what does he say in chapter 2? And I realized that there is an advantage to wisdom over folly, like the advantage of light over darkness. The wise person has eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. Yet I also knew that one fate comes to them both. So I said to myself, what happens to the fool will also happen to me. Why then have I been overly wise? And I said to myself that this is also futile. For just like the fool, there is no lasting remembrance of the wise, since in the days to come both will be forgotten. How is it that the wise person dies just like the fool? So his conclusion here in wisdom has more than one layer. If you look at these first two lines, doesn't it sound like a good thing to have eyes in your head? It is. It's a good thing to not walk in darkness. It is preferable to have wisdom. When you have wisdom, things will usually more often go well for you. And that's important. You don't want to walk in folly. But at the same time, if you elevate it above God, it becomes an idol. It will disappoint you. And you will not have the answers you seek. And you also not have God, which is truly the biggest tragedy. So in itself, wisdom is not capable of fulfilling us. Both the wise and the foolish face physical death. If we look to gaining wisdom and knowledge for ultimate meaning, we'll find it to be a disappointment. As I'm going through this with you guys, I'm just thinking about how everybody always says about Ecclesiastes that it's kind of depressing. So if if you feel that way right now, just wait till the end. It'll get better. So wisdom is good, but you just you can't make an idol of it because it will leave you disappointed. So the next thing that the teacher warns us about that I thought I would go over is he talks about wealth and pleasure and indulgence and possessions and all of these things. I didn't even include that particular scripture in here because it's really long. But in chapter 2, he gives us this list of indulgences that he's able to engage in. He starts with wine, which is literal wine, but it also implies all of these lavish, pleasurable things. And the list includes stuff like achievements, houses, vineyards, gardens, parks, every kind of fruit tree in these gardens, water reservoirs, servants, livestock, silver and gold, and all kinds of entertainment like singers and concubines, all of these things. And his conclusion after listing all of that is that there's ultimately nothing to be gained from any of it. 
He says, I've gotten all of this stuff, I've experienced all of these things, and ultimately I gained nothing from it. And just to take one little example, think of Solomon's architectural accomplishments, the things that he built. He built like the temple. He had this amazing house for himself, all of these structural things for the city and all this stuff. How many still stand? What's left of all of that? It's all in ruins. And largely, the memory of Solomon himself is forgotten. Before I became a Christian, if you would have asked me, who is Solomon? I would have been like, the guy that cut the baby in half? Like that, that was, you know, the only little piece of anything that stuck in my head. So largely, even the wisest man on earth has been forgotten. So the pursuit of wealth and possessions often brings sorrow. And that's laid out here in chapter 4, verses 5 through 9. The fool folds his arms and consumes his own flesh. Better one handful with rest than two handfuls with effort and a pursuit of the wind. Again, I saw futility under the sun. There is a person without a companion, without even a son or brother, And though there is no end to all his struggles, his eyes are still not content with riches. Who am I struggling for, he asks, and depriving myself of good things? This too is futile and a miserable task. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their efforts. For if either falls, his companion can lift him up. But pity the one who falls without another to lift him up. So again, the meaning here is layered. If you look at the beginning, he's not saying that wealth and possessions are all bad. And at the beginning, he says, folding folding your arms. That's an allusion to laziness. And being lazy and not taking care of what you need to take care of, it consumes you. It ultimately leads to poverty. So we know that's bad. That's what he's saying. But we, ha- we have to take care of ourselves, and working hard is not wrong. But it has to be balanced with actually being able to enjoy your life. It's better to have what you need with peace than have all of this extra with all of this crazy effort just to find out that it leaves you unsatisfied anyway. That's what he's saying. And often idolizing wealth and possessions, it isolates people from having relationships with anyone that they could share that with anyway. That's this little story about this person who says, who am I struggling for? Why am I depriving myself of good things? This too is futile. They become people that focus on gaining possessions and wealth. They can become so fixated on a desire for more that they alienate anyone that they could possibly share any of those things with. And eventually, money will fail them. It will fail them, and then there will be no one there to lift them up. What a sad state of affairs that is. It just won't fulfill us if we seek it for fulfillment. So you can see this pattern that's being established. Without even mentioning idolatry, Ecclesiastes clearly warns us that turning to these fleeting things in life for meaning, for salvation, for fulfillment will always be a disappointment because their dependability is an illusion. They are truly heavy. I want to go over just a couple more that are in here. Number three, let's talk about politics. 
and how that can become an idol and ultimately is empty. What does he say about that? Chapter 4, verse 13. Better is a poor but wise youth than an old but foolish king who no longer knows how to take a warning. For the youth has come from the prison to the kingship, though he was born poor in his own kingdom. I saw that all who lived and walked under the sun followed this second one, the youth who succeeded the king. There is no limit to all the people who were before them, yet the successor will not be celebrated by those who come even later. This, too, is futile and a pursuit of the wind. So in this story, you have two people. You have two main characters. You have the youth who is wise, and you have the old and foolish king. So the youth rises up, even though he's poor and destitute in this kingdom, he has wisdom. So he rises all the way from the bottom up to the top, and he becomes king. And where it says that all of the living, I saw that all who lived and walked under the sun followed this second one, this youth that rose up. It doesn't literally mean all of the living, because that would be impossible. But it's teaching a lesson here. What it means is the common behavior of people through all ages who follow kings as they rise. It's pointing to this being something that is pervasive across humanity. It says that there was no limit to all the people who were before them, both the old king and the young king. And when it says before them, it doesn't mean in terms of time. It means before them, like you guys are before me right now. There was no limit to all the people who were before these kings, you know, seeing them on their throne and bowing down to them and all of that. They had extreme popularity. There was all this enthusiasm, but eventually it falls away, right? They have enthusiasm for this new king, but just as the old king became a disappointment, so does all the enthusiasm for this new king fade. It fades away with the next generation of people. It says, yet the successor, the one who rose up, will not be celebrated by those who come even later. There will be a new wave of people, and there will be a new person. So there's a few things in this. There is no fulfillment for those that seek political power, as people are endlessly fickle. People may like you now, but they will not like you later. And there is no fulfillment for those that put their hope in and idolize political figures as they will only reign for a time before they are dethroned by the next popular movement. We see people come and go. For a time, they have power, and oftentimes they do good things, and we're thankful for that. But ultimately, can we get our fulfillment in them? No. Can we put our hope in them? No, we cannot do that. Because it doesn't pay off. And the last thing is here too. If you look closely, you'll see that indictment again on wisdom and folly. Because you have the old and foolish king, and you have the wise youth that rises up. Ultimately, the same fate befalls both of them. They're both lost to time. They both become obscure. Um, Even with the wisdom, he can't have his fulfillment in that popularity. So that's there too. The third thing I'd like to go over, and this is the last of the don'ts, is um, life and vitality. Have you ever seen people idolize life itself and vitality? People really hate to age. (laughs) There's a lot of effort to not age, so that's a big thing. 
Uh, this is chapter 8, verse 8. None of us can hold back our spirit from departing. None of us has the power to prevent the day of our death. There is no escaping that obligation, that dark battle. And in the face of death, wickedness will certainly not rescue the wicked. So, physical death, that's something that all people face right now. And it may sound kind of morbid, but we have to take we have to take that seriously. Our days on this earth are limited. Uh, and people will pursue all kinds of schemes, and some of them are wicked schemes, to try to control that fact, to try to control their own death, their own life, to try to have that on their terms, and things like that. You hear talk about things like that. But ultimately, death comes for everyone. It's an enemy. The Bible says it's an enemy of humanity. And it's the last enemy that Jesus will destroy. Ultimately, Jesus is the only one that has power over death. No matter what people try to do in all their schemes, they can't defeat it in their own power. And as we see technological advancements increase, we see the increase in availability of information, how to take care of yourself, how to not age, how to not do all these things. As we see that increase, we see people really idolizing life and vitality. And they live as if they can cheat death. And a lot of times in the process, they make themselves completely miserable. Like they're just totally miserable. And they can't even live their lives or enjoy their lives to any degree because they're just obsessed with avoiding death, which they cannot even do in the first place anyway. So again, that doesn't mean you should be foolish. It doesn't mean you should be careless with your physical body because in the end you'll suffer for that too. (laughs) You shouldn't do that. But don't become so fixated on controlling your own death that you can never really live. That's just a shame. I mean, there's something to really be said for gladness and joy of heart as you live your life. So there's many other lessons in Ecclesiastes. There's lessons that he talks about the uh, futility of being overly religious. He talks about justice, oppression, etc., all these things. But after going over all the don'ts, let's look at some of the do's, which also protect us from idolatry if we do them. The wisdom continues. So there's two main ones as you read through this book. Two main things the teacher says Don't get attached to these things. Do these things. The first one is enjoy your life and treat it as a gift. That's a pretty basic principle. It's something that you should do. This is what he says in chapter 9. Go eat your bread with pleasure. Drink your wine with a cheerful heart. For God has already accepted your works. Let your clothes be white all the time and never let oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife you love all the days of your fleeting life, which has been given to you under the sun all your fleeting days. For what is your portion in life and in your struggle under the sun? Whatever your hands find to do, do with all your strength, because there is no work, planning, knowledge, or wisdom in Sheol where you are going. (laughs) Sheol is the grave. But So the teacher here is not saying that there's no afterlife. He's not saying that eh, when you die, that's it. So you better just make it the best you can here. (laughs) Again, that's not what's being said. And this is not an invitation to live for the flesh and to neglect all of your necessary duties. That's not what's happening here. It doesn't mean that there's no afterlife. It's saying that in light of the fact that this life is limited, 
Treat everything you have as a precious gift that you're given from God. Even simple things, like your food and drink, like having a good meal. Can you receive that from the Lord? This is an awesome blessing. Can you give him thanks for it and actually enjoy it? The company of your friends, the company of a good friend, that's such a simple, sweet, and precious gift. Um, your spouse, your husband or your wife, can you just enjoy them as a gift from the Lord? I mean, those are the things this is talking about doing because a life without an enjoyment is no life at all. That's miserable. I was recently listening to people discussing Ecclesiastes, people that know and can read Hebrew and know a lot more than I do. And they had some really great thoughts on this. They talked about our modern times and how people have forgotten how to be present. Um, They've forgotten how to enjoy the present moment. And they said, as modern people, with all the control that we have over our world that we think we do, we often use the present moment to either look back at the past as something that we liked and try to figure out how to recreate that, or we use the present moment to plan for the future. Like That's how we see the present. We rarely see it as just, this is the moment that I'm in, and I'm just going to be here. And that's what Ecclesiastes is talking to us about doing, enjoying our life, that present moment. And I feel like I had a, I know that I had a lesson in this this summer because I, in my flesh, am very prone to nostalgia and anxiety at the same time. (laughs) They're wicked masters. They will completely, because nostalgia will take you to the past and anxiety will take you to the future and try to get you to avoid every disaster you possibly can. And you will miss out on your entire life if you live that way. It's horrible. And this summer, I worked a lot, and it wasn't fun. I didn't have a lot of super fun, relaxing time. But there was this one day where I wasn't at work at the market, and I didn't have other things to do. And I remember I was up at our fire pit, and it was it was in the evening, which is my favorite time of day in the summer anyway. And we have a beautiful view of the sunset from up on a hill at our fire pit. And I was up there, and my, my family was up there. And if you have four kids who are different ages, you find that a lot of times being together becomes difficult because people want to do different things because they're different people. <laughs> so everyone was up there, and no one was fighting. And everyone was enjoying themselves. And the temperature was just perfect. And the sun was going down, and it was so beautiful. I could never have created or come up with something as beautiful to look at as that sunset that was happening right then. And I had been at the beach earlier that day, and I still had sand on me, and I was kind of sweaty, and I was just radiating heat because I'd been in the sun all day. And it was just this, it was a perfect moment. And I remember sitting there thinking, wow, like I could just live this, if this is it, I'm good. Just to, just to feel this way for the rest of my life. This is wonderful. And I didn't create it. Like, there's nothing. Like it just came together. And in that moment, I just thought, well, thank you, Lord. Thank you for this day, for this moment, for this place right here. And I'm just going to sit here and experience it. I'm not going to think about 
what I would normally think about, which is what are all the elements of this? Well, i got to make sure I get outside before the sun sets because that's when things are perfect. And I need to spend more time at the beach, you know, because I love the sand and the sun. And we got to figure out how to get the kids to, like, want to spend more time together. And we've got to... I would normally go to that place like, wow, this is really great. How can I recreate this so I can feel like this in the future? Instead of just, goodness sakes, just be there and just enjoy it. And that was the first time in my life that I consciously thought, yes, I'm going to do that. And I'm going to let everything else fall away. And I don't know what's going to happen in the next hour, but I know this one is fantastic. And that, it just changes something. When you're able to just receive that as a gift from the Lord. You can't control that. You couldn't make that sunset. You couldn't put all those things together if you tried. And it's not even worth trying. Just receive it and thank the Lord for it as a gift. And even though I can't control what's going to happen next, and it might, there's going to be bad times too, somehow receiving that moment as a gift makes that easier to swallow. That maybe the next thing won't be so great. But this thing is, and I'm going to live in it. I feel like that's what Paul was on to when in his letter he said that he had discovered, um, he had learned how to be content in every circumstance. Yeah, he was really on to something. He was content in all of the things that he went through. There's so many things that we can't control, and there is a time for everything. But you really need to enjoy and give thanks for what you've been given to Accept it from the hand of the Lord and, and relish that. So when you receive good and enjoyable things as a gift from God, it becomes difficult, if not impossible, to then make an idol out of those things. So you're acknowledging that they come from him. And I think about this, too, with my dog. <laughs> you know, we've lost pets before, and that's really hard. And this is just another lesson for me. You know, Joe and I have often talked about, like, is it even worth it? You know, is it even worth it to have these animals because we're on the physical plane and they die and it's horribly painful. It's it's awful. But I can spend so much time when I look at Indy thinking about how much it's gonna hurt when she's gone. Why would I do that? She's here right now and I'm missing it. Like right now I can enjoy her fully. Why do I need to focus so much on that? It just robs you of all that stuff. So enjoy your life, receive it from the Lord as a gift. The second thing, lest you think that the first do, the first instruction was too permissive, here's the balance for it. You enjoy your life, but you have to fear God. The teacher in Ecclesiastes says, fear the Lord. Chapter 11, verse 9. Rejoice, young person, while you are young, and let your heart be glad in the days of your youth. And walk in the ways of your heart and the desire of your eyes. But know that for all of these things, God will bring you to judgment. (laughs) You see the balance. You see the directive to enjoy your life. But know that for all of these things, God will bring you to judgment. There is a balance. I really like how my study Bible commentary broke this down. I don't feel the need to paraphrase it or to change it. So I'm just going to read it straight from because it was good. The danger is that some people will try to enjoy life by doing things that are offensive to God. Whoever does such things destroys himself and loses both happiness and God. 
On the other hand, those who have the wrong kind of fear of God believe that anything that makes people happy must be bad. Thus, they deprive themselves of legitimate joys. Both of those things are such a tragedy, and I think the enemy loves it when either of those things happen. I was listening to Derek Prince one time, and he made it, it was almost like a proverb. He said, you're traveling on a narrow road, and there's a trough on this side, and there's a trough on that side. Don't work so hard to avoid that trough that you end up in the other one. Don't go so hard at being like, ooh, all these things are bad, so I'm just going to, that you end up totally over here in legalism and completely miserable as well. There's two troughs, not just one. Don't end up in either of them. Both extremes are a victory for the enemy, and they're they're sad. Thinking about fearing God reminded me of a story. It's kind of like an analogy. I hope you can see the point I'm trying to make in it. Back when I was in high school, I had a friend, and her dad had like lots of what we would call toys, like cool stuff. And one of those cool things was a car. It was an old classic car, and he would pretty much only get it out for parades, and it was super expensive and awesome. And every once in a while, he would let us drive it. We were just teenagers. It seems insane to me looking back on it in my memory because it just seems like it would be fraught with potential disaster. But he would let us take it out, take us, take it out every once in a while. And it looked like this. Yeah. Two teenage girls in this. It was a Ford Torino. I don't remember what year it was, but it was a convertible. And the engine in it was powerful. It sounded amazing. I mean, it was really fun. He'd let us take it out every once in a while. But he'd tell us, and we knew that this car's engine had a governor in it. So if you tried to push it, to really go for it, this governor would come in and and cut out the engine. It would only let you go so fast. So her dad didn't say, though, this car is too awesome. It's too, you're going to enjoy it too much. You're going to get reckless and you're going to end up dead. So you can't enjoy it at all. That's not what he said, but he had that governor in there. So we could still go out and enjoy the car and have a lot of fun in this hot red car. We could still do that, but we didn't enjoy it unto death. And he made sure of that. And the fear of God, I feel like, is analogous to that. Um, When you're enjoying your life, when you're living your life, and you have the fear of the Lord... You can still enjoy your life, but you will not enjoy your life unto eternal death. The fear of the Lord protects you from that. We, we have to have the fear of the Lord in us. And when we appropriately fear God, we also don't make idols. You also won't idolize things. So fear the Lord, and you can enjoy your life, but you won't enjoy it unto eternal death when you fear him. So just to kind of sum up, this fear of the Lord principle. The fear of God is honesty and it's humility before God on our part. It's an understanding that we're dependent on him. We're completely dependent on him. His ways are life to us. They're higher than our ways. And sometimes we do not understand that. Oftentimes we don't. God has his his own secret and hidden wisdom. And sometimes he reveals it to us. 
And that's how we get to know that level of wisdom, like when he reveals Jesus to us. That was God's secret and hidden wisdom for the ages, and then he revealed it in its time. And the only way people come to know that is when he reveals it to them, and it's awesome. It's God's wisdom. So his ways are higher than ours. They are life to us. And we have to remember the fact that ultimately he is our judge. We have a life to live, but the Lord is the one who judges us. And when you fear God, you'll have the wisdom to enjoy the good gifts that he gives you in this life. But just like in the car, you will check yourself before you wreck yourself (laughs) when you have the fear of the Lord. All right, let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for your spirit, Holy Spirit. We thank you that you minister to us as we read the word, that you um, reveal wisdom and truth to us. We're so thankful for that. So I pray that for each of us, you would increase us in wisdom the increased revelation of who you are, who we are in you. And Lord, help us to never fall into the pit of idolatry, but to be singularly devoted to you in all things, Lord. Help us not to fall into either trough, but to stay on the narrow road. We thank you for all you're doing, Lord, and all you've done. In Jesus' name, amen.